Welcome to It's All About the Questions, where learning to ask the right questions can help you achieve lifelong success. Now, here to help you ask all the right questions is award-winning author, international speaker, and business strategist, Laura Stewart. Good morning, afternoon, and evening, everyone, and welcome, welcome, welcome to the show today, my favorite part of the week, as I say every week. I love being here with you because I love the the stories that you tell me about what you've gotten from the show. I love hearing the new questions you're learning and the new answers that you're getting because of the new questions that you're asking. Uh, perspectives are shifting and that to me is what this show is all about. It's about introducing you to amazing people you may not have heard of, or if you have, learning from those you know to teach you a different way of thinking. And today is no different. I've got an amazing guest on my show. He's a repeat guest on my show. And he had actually flipped the mic on me a few years ago when I was on his show, Built to Sell, after I had sold my tech services company, which you've heard me talk about. And if you've gotten an email from me, you know, in my signature line, there is a link to that wonderful article that John Warlow did. Today, we're going to be here with John Warlow. He is just released his new book, The Art of Selling Your Business. I love, love, love this book to the point where I wish I had written it myself because it is dog-eared. I've learned, and I'm thinking about other things about how to build my current business to sell as well. So please, everybody, welcome the amazing, the incomparable, and very cold outside <laughs> of your house today, John Warlow. <laughs> Thanks, Laura. It's very, uh, very good to see you again. Yeah, it's great to see you too. And I know you're up in Toronto. I so. am. Much to my chagrin today, because it's <laughs> sideways snow and minus five or something ridiculous like that. Well, I'm glad to be it. with you. It's warm inside here. so And it's warm inside here too. So And the show is warm. So we're going to have a lot of fun. Oh, and everybody, yes, I still do have this on. I go Wednesday and find out what's going on. And uh, for those of you who read my post that said I sliced the bottom of my foot with a piece of glass, I am okay. <laughs> I've been doing really strange, stupid things lately, John. Really? <laughs> All right. So I want to talk about this book, The Art of Selling Your Business. Now, you are known for your podcast, the your um, the work you do, the consulting work you do, Built to Sell, your value builder system. You've done amazing things with helping companies build their companies to sell them, or if they've built them, figure out if they could sell them. I want to ask you a question because I recently heard this from somebody. They think it's a dirty word to build your company to sell it. I disagree. So let's talk about that to start. What yeah, I, well, I had this ex very ex exact experience. I wrote a book called Built to Sell like almost 10 years ago now. And I was on a podcast and the podcaster said, no word of lie, his intro was, Oh, yeah, Warlow, right. You're the douchebag who wrote Built to Sell. And I just about fell off my chair. I never had anybody call me that before. And I thought, like, this is crazy. And he went on to chastise me and said, you know, like, only the greediest entrepreneurs build to, you know, sell. And, you know, everybody's got to build to last. And, you know, you got to create a legacy. And, I, you know, I just, I, I was on my back heel. And at the time, I did not rebut his criticism well, but I've had lots of time to think about it since. And I just, I so disagree. It, it reminds me, you know, I did it. I don't know if you've heard this episode. It was with a guy I interviewed on Built to Sell Radio named Joey Redner. I heard and that one. 
Did you really? Okay, yeah. so you'll remember Cigar City Brewing builds a little little brewery brewery based in Tampa, Florida. And he sells out of beer. It's it's going gangbusters. So he has to borrow money from his dad to build like a professional brewing capacity. He builds 800 grand from his dad. And the thing just takes off and it it is becoming a bigger and bigger success. Uh, In fact, so much so that he has to actually build more capacity. So now he's in hawk to his dad for 800 grand. Remember, this is a successful business, like profitable, but very cash hungry. So goes to the SBA and gets another couple million bucks to expand his facility again. And the third time he literally runs out of brewing capacity. It's been that successful. And he pulls up and says, enough. I, you know, I interviewed him. I said, like, what was that like? He he said, I felt like I was the gambler at the poker table. I had just won the last five consecutive hands. And yet the dealer was saying, okay, put all your chips in the table again and bet it all. And he said, enough is enough, I'm out. And he decided to sell his business to Oscar Blues, a big private equity-backed craft brewery. And everybody's happy. Joey paid back the loans, put some cash in his jeans, and has gone on to do great things since. The buyers got a great business. And I just just so disagree with this idea that 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 building to sell is, is a greedy proposition. I think all of us as entrepreneurs have a best before date. And it and it probably happens in a lot of cases much sooner than we'd like to admit. I, I know for me, it happened way sooner than I wanted to admit, you know, as we talked about on the episode on your show. Mm-hmm. And there was this moment where I was just like, I'm tired of constantly striving for more growth for the next level, for the next level. And it's like, well... I guarantee you there's somebody else out there that can do it better than I'm wanting to deal with it right now. So why not sell it to somebody that wants to take it to the next level? And by the way, they sold my company two more times after I sold it. Wow. So I feel like I had great legacy because it continued to be a company that people wanted to buy, whether somebody remembered where the start was or not. But yet people go, all right, but that's a company that wasn't built to sell. It was a company that he had started probably thinking that he was going to be doing this for the next 40 years of his life with no plan of selling it. But what about those people that the day they're getting ready to start their business, they're going, I'm planning on selling this company in two years and I'm going to do everything I can to make it get the biggest cash offer at the end of it. Yep. And I think that's a legitimate way to go. Again, it reminds me of of one of the other guests I've interviewed on the show. Guy's name is Rob Walling. He started a little email marketing software called Drip. And he built it to sell from the beginning, right? Like it was, first of all, software as a service company, which are very sellable, very attractive segment right now. But he focused on building a product that was highly differentiated. That's one of the things that we talk about at Value Builder, this notion of having monopoly control. What Warren Buffett talks about, a wide moat around your company. So it makes it very difficult to compete with. And then he got his SaaS company to a point of negative net churn, which is effectively churn, of course, is how much of your customers leave you on a SaaS platform every month. 
Uh, net churn is the difference between your gross churn and your upgrade revenue, the proportion of people who buy more of what you sell. And then to get to negative net churn, effectively what you're doing is you're getting more upgrades than you are losing revenue from, from churn. Right. And so Walling got dripped to negative net churn and at just $2 million of annual revenue, he decided to sell it. Now, some people are going to hear that, Lauren, say like, that's still a pretty young business. It's not a very big business. Why would he sell? Well, he sold because it was built to sell and he was looking at offers in the nine to 12 times, if you can believe it, top line revenue. Like it's, it's, it's astonishing to think about a business of that size, just $2 million in revenue, like a dozen employees that would sell for that kind of money. But it was built to sell from the beginning. And he reads something that we talk a lot about called the freedom point, which is the point at which the sale of your company can fund the lifestyle that you dream of for the rest of your life. And when you reach that point, it's worth asking the question, and am I willing to give up effectively financial freedom in return for what you described, Laura, as like the next tranche of growth, right? And you were burnt out and you're like, I just, I just don't want to do it. Yeah. And Wally got to the same point and realized that if he just sold his company, even though it's just $2 million of annual revenue, he could live comfortably for the rest of his life. I think that's such a great jumping off point for, for the rest of the conversation. Because you said a word in there, lifestyle, right? To have the lifestyle he wants. And I hear that word so often when I'm talking to different people talking about business growth and this, and they're like, oh, well, you have a lifestyle company. I'd love us to re redefine that word lifestyle business, right? Because to me, a lifestyle business is whatever business creates for you the lifestyle you want. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be a dirty word of, you know, it's just a mom and pop and, you know, you have no plans for expansion, but it can be. But it can also be, I'm creating a business because the lifestyle I want is to live on a sailboat, a giant sailboat somewhere, and probably people in the days of COVID are thinking this right now, where I'm cruising around and never have to worry about coming to land except for somebody to load groceries on. <laughs> you know, or I want to buy that huge compound somewhere where I'm away from everybody so that I feel safe. Those are both lifestyle kind of businesses, mm -hmm. but yet it still seems to be a dirty word to many in the business world to design your business based on the lifestyle that you want. So thinking of it that way, John, with your new book, The Art of Selling Your Business, what do you say to that, to the entrepreneurs that are listening out here? Yeah, I mean, I think the lifestyle business is one in which it is effectively your piggy bank in, in, in the sense that it is creating the lifestyle that you want. And I think you can run a lifestyle business in a professional manner that is also a sellable company. You can also run a lifestyle business that's not sellable. So effectively, what you're looking for, the, the precursor, the, the raw material for a sellable company is one that can thrive without you. And if it can, then it is 
a sellable asset and whether you perceive it to be a, a, a lifestyle thing or not. I'm reminded of, of, of another guy I interviewed that's in the book named Sean Oshman, who for him, he was running in a, a small IT services business in, in, in Denver, Colorado. Uh, and he reached a point where he wanted to actually, no word of lie, live on a sailboat. Funny, you should bring the whole idea of a sailboat up. That's what his desire was. And so he got to the point, he said, by my 40th birthday, I want to be living on a sailboat. Here he is in landlocked Denver, Colorado, and he decides that he's got to sell his company. And so for him, a lifestyle business, I mean, it was a profitable company. Uh, it was a, a relatively successful company. But for him to really create the lifestyle that he dreamed of, it did require him to sell the company. Um, in other cases, it doesn't. It, it is a it is a successful enough business that it is um, it, there is no need to sell it, and and it allows you, it affords you the lifestyle. I think the difference is can you structure it so that it's not dependent on you? And if you do that, it gives you it unlocks the sort of key to the kingdom. It 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 allows you the freedom to be wherever you want, travel wherever you want. At the same time, it is a sellable asset if that's what you choose to do with it. Uh, so I think aspiring for a lifestyle business is a very um, uh, attractive aspirational goal, provided your definition is that it is a business that can thrive without you, as opposed to a piggy bank, which is not a company that you could sell. Okay, so let's talk about that concept of thrive without you. Mm -hmm. What does that mean and what are steps that entrepreneurs, business owners can take now to begin to make a business that can thrive without them? Like if their business is one that they're the face of it, how do they begin to separate themselves out from that? And yeah, why, of, why is it so critical, you know, as well? We talked a little, you talked a little bit about that. Yeah. So look, for your company to have value. It has to thrive without you. And so that really means that the business doesn't need you to run the day-to-day -day operations. It's not, doesn't need you to do the work, nor does it need you to do the selling, which are the two time, two areas that business owners often get sort of sucked into the company. Especially so, the selling part. Especially the selling part. And so one of the keys and tricks is to productize. So I just did an interview. It hasn't gone live yet, but it was with a guy who built a company called Sales Benchmark Index. And he built it to 30 million in revenue and just 30 employees. So if you're doing wow. the math, that's a million dollars of revenue per employee. And I asked him, like, how on earth did you do that? And he said, I did it to product, I did it by productizing my service. So what he did is instead of selling his hours or you know, project-based, he said, look, we know how to do these specific sales uh, consulting things. So for example, we know how to segment your database. We know how to benchmark your salespeople in deciles, et cetera. And so he would go to his customers with these very packaged services. And that, he says, gave him leverage because we weren't learning how to sell that service. We weren't learning how to deliver and execute that service. We knew how to do it with our eyes closed. And so the, the customer would value it uh, at a much higher rate than we necessarily would if we were billing by the hour. So one of the first steps is productizing. The other thing that is really important is naming your product. And so unlike most of us, most service companies that charge, for example, by the hour or by the, by the project, he named his services. He actually branded them. That gives them a tangibility or a tangibleness to them. And what that does is allow salespeople to sell it. Because 
As entrepreneurs, we often sell almost by default. We don't even know we're doing it, but we're such subject matter experts in what we do. And you're Laura, you're, you're a classic example. We're such so good at what we do that we kind of, people want to want to buy from us just because we're industry experts. That's not the same for the salespeople you hire. They are generally not the same level of industry expertise as you have. And therefore you need to basically productize your service. So they have a thing to sell. They thrive on replicating, you know, reps, repetition, doing the same thing. And so that's another reason I think you want to productize and specifically name your products uh, so that other people could do the selling. That's important. I I love that because I know that one of the difficulties I had was finding salespeople Mm -hmm. in, in my business. And it was because they just couldn't seem to express it the same way. And listening to what you said, even though I had productized, like we had Angel Watch, we had Angel, you know, like everything was named, they, I obviously never fully trained them into what it was. I didn't make it easy enough for just anybody to go out there because so much of what I did was consulting at the sale versus selling. So can we talk about that? You know, you, you you mentioned building these product lines, productizing with this latest person. One of the things that smaller businesses, when they start out, well, every business that starts out as a small business, right? Mm-hmm. They can grow to be these fortune. Even Tesla was just an idea and he lost yeah. his mind at one point. Amazon, yeah. they were yeah, boxing there was, up yeah. books in the garage. Yeah. It was a small yeah. business when they started out, right? He might've gotten a bunch of funding, but it was still a small business. Yep. So this idea of separating yourself out for many businesses, especially in the early stage, the sell to get new clients is a very consultative one. It's not a go buy my book. It's you're buying me, you're buying my company. So how do you move from that as you, and I know you have a lot of that inside your book and with your website as well. Um, How do you move from that in a progression to where you can add these different salespeople in and separate yourself back. Yeah, I think it's discovering what your TVR is, which stands for teachable, valuable, repeatable. Effectively, you're looking for a service, an offering, in particular service companies now, because that's what you asked me about it. You're looking for a service that meets those three criteria. It's got to be TVR, teachable, valuable, repeatable. It's got to be teachable to employees. Number one, so it's got to be something that you can train other people to deliver. Number two, it's got to be valuable to customers. In other words, it can't be a commodity. And number three, it's got to be repeatable. So people need to have a repeatable cadence to what they do. And one of my favorite examples of this comes from a guy named Darren Root. Darren built an accounting practice, very successful accounting practice, but pretty dependent on him personally until he went through the TVR process. He looked at all the services he provided. So, you know, classic bookkeeping services, and he, he did some IT consulting. Uh, he did audits, and he even did some selling M&A work, but, you know, business brokering work. And he looked at all those things, and he said, you know, like, none of these things really meet this TVR criteria. The things that are most teachable to my employees, they're not very valuable to my customers. Equally, the most valuable things that I do, i.e. the M&A work, I can't teach someone else to do. And But what he did was he sat down and put his 
things on a, on a whiteboard and said, what's teachable, what's valuable, what's repeatable. And you discovered that if he were to outsource, the, allow his customers to outsource their back office, which included their bank payroll, their sort of bank reconciliation, their payroll, uh, their credit card statements. If he could offer something that would allow a business owner not to have to hire an office manager, that would be a valuable solution. Oh, and so absolutely. He created that. Yeah, he created it. It's called the Boss System. It's called the Back Office Support System. And his target market are generally physicians, dentists, people in the medical world, where oftentimes they are frustrated by the idea of having to hire like a full-time office manager at a relatively high salary just to run the back office of the, of the practice. And he went to them and said, look, you don't need to do that. You make money when you're seeing patients. Why don't you let me take care of the back office stuff? I'll offer you this boss solution. And so he built a very successful accounting practice on the back of this productized service. But it all starts, Laura, with this notion of what's teachable, what's valuable, and what's repeatable for your customers. I love that because so many people never really get to that TBR, right? Mm -hmm. They're, they especially the repeatable. They may think they have something repeatable, but it's really not because they keep making modifications to it or customizing it. Yeah, we, you know, and and the problem is that I think we run into customizations because we don't do the first step and the most important step, which is to segment the market based. That's the first step in all of the TVR work is before you get into trying to figure out what your solution is, really do a, a, a really uh, rigorous job of segmenting your customer base. Because trying to create a homogeneous offering, a TVR offering for all of your customers is likely going to lead to a diluted offering. Whereas if you really segment hard first and then look at your segments and say, what could I develop for each segment? That's when you start to see uh, real uh, powerful uh, offerings. I'm reminded of, uh, of a guy I actually interviewed for a book I wrote before the one that we're talking about today called The Automatic Customer. Where that I was a great book. Love oh, that book. Thanks, Laura. I appreciate that. It was... Um, it was all about recurring revenue. And, and so I, I, I interviewed a guy named Sanyu Panda who started a company called H Bloom. And they were in the business of selling flowers, right? So if you know anything about selling flowers, it's a very, very seasonal business. Mother's Day, Valentine's Day are the big days. And right. virtually all of their revenue gets done. And so Panda looked at this model and said, no, no, I want to sell on a recurring model, i.e. the R in teachable, valuable, repeatable. And so he looked out and said, who buys flowers on a regular cadence? And it turned out that hotels buy flowers regularly because they want that sort of prestigious image on their reception table, right? right. Flowers are. And so he said, we're going to sell a subscription of flowers and we could teach other people to sell it, right? Because we're going to train our salespeople. It's going to be valuable to the hotels because at the time, hotels were literally going down to a flower store and buying a bouquet of flowers. And the general manager or someone senior in the company had to go waste their time physically. And now he, Panda says, look, we'll ship them to you every two weeks and we'll get rid of the old ones when we drop off the new ones. And it was an automatic uh, sort of subscription offering that he created. I but love that. Yeah. The first step, though, was not to think about, okay, how do I sell flowers on subscription? 
right? Because because he would have looked at all the people who buy flowers, and it was like, you know, people who buy for funerals and weddings and and graduation and etc. He said, no, I want to segment first, identified hotels as one of his buying segments, and then built out a TVR solution just for that one segment. And so that's I think the secret to to figuring out your TVR. In the case of Darren Root, it was to look at his medical practices, who had the most acute pain associated with the back office of their practices. So it wasn't for all of his practice. It was just for the medical practitioners. So that's the first step is the segmentation piece. Okay. So we're talking about that, right? What I'm hearing, what's popping up into my mind, oh my God, like, (laughs) is doing that really can determine the value of your business to somebody who wants to buy it. Because now you have created perhaps a vertical. And for those listening, if you're not familiar, a vertical is an industry or a group, a segment, as John said, that maybe you have a strength in. Like I did a lot of medical clients and legal because, you know, we did a lot of focus around people who had to follow regulations that were set down. So we created products that enabled them to make it easier to do that, which made it you know, more, um, more nice for somebody who wanted to buy it. When you're doing something like that, sometimes your other clients may fall off because you feel you're seeing this growth as the accounting firm, as the um, flower firm determined, you know, hospitals as well, you know, subscription delivery, selling flowers into the hospitals, making sure they had enough of, of that stuff into their gift shops or whatever it may be. We have a local florist that does that with the gift shops here at the hospitals. They just constantly deliver stuff to them. Hmm. But um, how does that change things if say, you're developing your business, okay? You're seeing you have some segmentation and then other things fall off. Does that make a difference to a buyer if they see, well, there was this drop-off of revenue somewhere? Does that factor? Does it make a difference? Yeah, so two things to keep in mind. Number one, and I'd ask you to think about this in your own life. When was the last time you made a hearty, full-throated endorsement of somebody where you referenced or referred a supplier into your life? I mean, Laura, can you think of a time in the last month where you've referred a supplier of something to yeah, a friend? Yeah, I do said, it all the time. Hey, like, give me an example. Um, my plumber. <laughs> and what was it? So why, why did you recommend him or her? Um, somebody in my community um, needed a plumber and other people were talking about all these other plumbers. And I'm like, no, you need to use my plumber. Here's why. Here's what he does. Here's how exceptional he is. And he just shows up and does what he says he's going to do. What was it that makes him exceptional in addition to that he shows up and does what he says he's going to do. Well, in Florida, that's a huge thing. If a contractor just shows up when they say (laughs) that he shows up. Got it. Got it. You know, it, it's sadly it's a huge thing down here. I never understood that coming from New York. You know, the people show up when they say they're going to show up. But the big thing was he always gets the job done. He keeps me informed throughout the process of what's going on, so I don't get any major surprises. Great. Sounds during like the process. 
Sounds like a great plumber. Not exactly the kind of example I was thinking of, but it sounds like he's he's great and does his his work well. What, where I was going with that is that oftentimes we uh, we tend to refer people who are specialists, right? So if you're just a general accountant or a general graphic designer or a general photographer, it's hard to kind of get really excited about recommending you. You're not terribly memorable. I'm reminded of a, a photographer, for example, who chose to focus on school photographs. All they do, they don't do weddings, they don't do softball teams. They All they do is those little school photographs we as parents get of our kids. Right. That's a very referenceable case study for me because it's memorable. It's not just a floral, a, a photographer. It's a very specific one. And so what I would say to the person who's nervous about uh, jettisoning some customers or, you know, um, pruning some customers is the more you specialize, the more referable you become. So I think you might be surprised at how quickly the word of mouth starts to accelerate when you start to really prune your customer base to being the ones that you really want. The second thing I would say, and this relates more to the selling of a company, less to the building of one, and that is that when an acquirer buys your company, they make a build versus buy decision. So, and they don't tell you they're making this. They're generally behind closed doors in their boardroom and they're saying, do we need to buy this business or can we just compete with them? Like, is they doing something so unique that it would take us too long or too much money to replicate? Or can we just lower the price we're offering our service by for six months and basically pick up all their company, their business? And if the answer is that really there's nothing unique about what they do, that they're just providing a commoditized service, you're not going to get acquired you're going to get and create a competitor. They're simply just going to choose to lower their price. So the companies that get acquired do one thing so well that the acquirer looks at it and says, you know what, let's just buy them. It's going to take us years to build the same kind of brand equity, same kind of customer list, the same kind of processes that they've got already baked. Uh, why don't we just buy them? And that's, you know, you're, this, it had happened with angel care for in, your, in, in your example, but it's one of the main reasons, I think, that you want to, even though you might be having to say goodbye to some customers, you really want to specialize uh, because it, number one, makes you more referable in the short term. It makes your company sellable in the long term. Yeah, I love that concept because, well, we always, I always, and I still do this now, I look at my customer list every year. And there are some people that time to pass on to somebody else because mm. it's not really where I'm seeing the focus of my company moving towards. So as a company is sitting here listening to us today, John, and they're looking at their customer list and they're thinking of, I want to build my company to sell. I'm thinking about, you know, I'm, I'm reading John's book, which by the way is available everywhere. <laughs> um, what are some things that, some questions that they can be asking themselves right now about their businesses to perhaps shift them from out of their thinking of, I'm, I'm just heads down, I'm working to step back, you know, as uh, Michael Gerber always said in the E-Myth, working on your business versus in your business. Okay. Mm -hmm. So what are some things that they need to start saying to themselves, step back, take a breath and look inside. What do they need to look at in their business? 
that you've seen make a huge difference with the show? Yeah, I, I actually start off with a, a more philosophical recommendation, which is to reframe what you think of as success. You know, I think as entrepreneurs, we are programmed and the media doesn't do us any, it does a great disservice, I think here. We're programmed to view revenue as our most important yardstick, right? So the Inc. 5000 is the 5,000 fastest growing companies. Um, you know, the, the biggest companies are the ones that get covered by the media and talked about by, you know, all the different media pundits. Whereas I think the ultimate goal for an entrepreneur should be to raise their business like they would a child. And I know that sounds really weird on a business podcast to think about the role of parenting in building a company. But I think for those of us who have kids, I've got, I've got two kids, 13 and 15 now. And, you know, I think about this, you know, as much as I would love them to go off to some fancy school or play for some amazing sports team, at the end of the day, my wife and I will be very happy if they grow into you know, young men that can function on their own, that can do their own laundry and sort of, you know, live independently and, and we'll be happy. We'll figure, you know, we've right. taken that box. We've done our job as parents and we've got some work to do on that, but we will get there. <laughs> uh, but the, you know, the, 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 that's the idea that I think the most successful businesses owners, that's the mentality they take when they approach their company. It's, is, is I'm, trying to get this business to where it is now, which is deeply dependent on me, I'm doing all the selling, I'm doing all the work, to a point where it can actually live on its own without me doing any of those things. So that may sound like a very esoteric concept, but I think it's it's actually fundamental to this idea of building to sell, is really switching your, your goalposts. And, and don't chase a revenue number. Don't chase a profit. I, mean, I go back to Rob Walling, $2 million of annual revenue, 12 employees, not a very big company, but one that he sold at a multiple of, like a many, many, many times over on multiple right. revenue. So I just think it's a different way to think about running a company that's, that's a, a really important philosophy. Well, I like that philosophy because, you know, as I said at the opening of the show, this is about shifting your perspectives, right? And asking somebody to look at their business in a different way philosophically and what success means to them can open them up to, okay, you know what? I thought that this is what I wanted, but really I can see myself a few years down the road or 10 years down the road um, thinking this way. So I, I think that's a, a wonderful thought. And I think it's something we all should be thinking about, not only for our businesses, for but for our lives as well, right? What do we really want? Have, has something shifted? Has something changed? So and what now the practical, somebody, I, I know your show is all about questions. So I mean, one of the practical things your audience can do to, to, to think about this or apply this philosophy is just think about the next customer, the next project, the next client. And before you say yes to offering that product or working with that client, just say, is that project going to make my business less or more dependent on me? Oh, I and love if, that. If the answer is more, although it may be tempting for revenue and cash flow perspectives, think twice because it may just get you on a hamster wheel to nowhere, right? If you're not really building anything that's independent of you, 
it's more of a job than a business. Even though the IRS thinks it's a, a business, really it's a job. And if the goal is to build something that you could ultimately have run without you, giving you the freedom to do what you want, including selling, if that's what the choice you make, then it, it may actually be worth declining that client or project uh, and investing that time in building a business that's, that's less dependent on you. Is there ever a time from your experience where sometimes entering into something with a new client or with a new idea that requires you as the owner to put your face and be the front, but you know that it has a short time period where, you know, you're creating something, you're generating all of that excitement for it, and then you can transition it off. Does that ever work, not work? Yeah. Oh, for sure. And, and I mean, again, a lot of us as entrepreneurs, we we add the most value to our companies when we're thinking about new products, uh, working on new initiatives, new marketing programs, et cetera. So yes, definitely. And if you've got a, a, a brand new initiative and you want to create your first customer and get that under your belt and, and kind of create a, a case study, for example, by all means, that's something that you can do. Know that if you then happen to you know, put your business on the market during the throes of that project, it's not likely going to be a sellable company or one that you could sell without an earnout. Okay. But at the same time, if you take your position as I'm going to create this pilot project, this pilot customer, prove that it works, and then demonstrate how other people could do the selling, et cetera, then by all means, I think I think that's 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 fine. And that's you know the way a lot of a lot of um a lot of companies are built. Um, it's just, I mean, you think about it, you just put yourself in the, in the shoes of the acquirer and you say, look, what am I buying? And, and how is this business going to perform when I write a check to the owner? And if they're worried that it's not going to perform well, they're, they're certainly not going to write a check of any substance to the owner. Okay. So we've now leapt to another conversational point that I really want to make sure we we cover because you talk about it a lot in here and actually everything that you do built to sell automatic customer, the latest, the art of selling your business and your show talk to this. So now you've kind of said, all right, I am going to build my company to sell. I'm at a point where um, I want to have that conversation now that opens up a whole can of worms. I, I mentioned before we started the show, a friend of mine got approached by somebody and I laughed. I so laughed, John, when I read it in your book, this similar situation, because I, I, my friend called me up and he goes, I got invited to lunch. Somebody wants to buy my business. What do I do? And I said, well, first off, just don't say anything when you go, <laughs> you know, let them talk way more than, than you talk, you know? And he said that, the offer was terrible. I'm like, what do you mean the offer was terrible? And he said, well, it was going to be a complete earnout, and they weren't giving me any money up front. And I had to stay and do all the work that I'm doing now that I'm not doing well at, which means I will probably never earn my earnout. <laughs> so basically they just want my customer list. Mm. Yeah. So what are things that from that point, you know, like using my friend as an example, I mean, how do you, how do you talk to them? Yeah. So we should be clear that an earnout is a mechanism that a buyer will use to effectively buy your business 
and and usually with some cash up front, but not always, with some goals in the future that if you were to reach those goals, you would receive a second you know, or third payment of, of funds. And they're often used in a professional services industry in business when the owner is the most important linchpin to the, the operation and they want to lock that owner in and pay as little upfront as possible. Right. So, I mean, a couple things you can do. Number one, make sure you create multiple offers for a company like that. So, you know, reacting to one offer is going to put them in the absolute worst possible negotiating situation. So if you really genuinely do want to sell that company, I would then hire an M&A professional or business broker, depending on the size, and create a marketplace for it, effectively shopping the business to a few buyers. And what that does is it hardens the deal terms, meaning it, it improves the deal terms. So if, if if your customer was getting you know 10% down and 90% on an earnout, what he might or she might find is that if they were to shop the business, that there might, he, he or she might be able to get a, a higher proportion of their cash up front. The second thing that I would say is is more structural, and that is that the reason they're offering you an earnout is because they believe the business is still dependent on you personally, and that those customers, the customer list he or she claims that they want to buy, the 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 equity in those customer relationships still resides with the owner. And so what you want to do is create a situation where you can look at the buyer and say, no, the, the customers are dependent or, 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 uh, or loyal to a certain product or, or an employee of mine that is not me, the owner. I, I'm reminded of, a, of, of this interview, again, with the SBI. It'll, it'll air in the next couple of weeks. Uh, the guy who built the company, 30 employees, didn't know many of his customers, uh, and that's what enabled him to sell a professional services company without an earnout, which is somewhat rare. It's much more likely that you would. But again, you want to do the hard lifting, heavy lifting of hiring people to do the work for you, productizing, and in many cases, putting in recurring revenue. Recurring revenue can be that that glue that acquirers see when you when you can demonstrate sticky customers. That can give an acquirer a high degree of confidence that the business is going to live on without you. It's one of the reasons, for example, Sean Oshman, remember the guy from Denver who built the IT right. services company? He went from doing kind of break-fix IT to really focusing on uh, antivirus software management, basically managing over time, offering managed services to small businesses. And because similar to, in your case, cre he created recurring revenue, uh, it gave an acquirer a sense of confidence that the business would continue with or without Sean. So recurring revenue can be an, another sort of very important precursor to taking your business to market. Okay, now somebody's in a conversation with a buyer, what are some things that they need to think about? We'll never answer the question, what's my company worth or what's your company worth or how much do you want for the business? One of the things that acquirers all do, almost all do, I should say, is they're, they're going to try to elicit your number from you because he or she who offers the first number in any negotiation almost always loses. I'm reminded of a story. I don't know if you remember <laughs> the story about Chris Jones in the book, the guy who's, yeah. who sold the company Pepper Jam. Do you remember that one? Yeah, I do. I love that story. So so Jones, Chris is a great guy and has gone on to do great things, but he started a little company called Pepper Jam. 
and they were in the affiliate marketing space. And he got a call from a guy named Michael Rubin, who was at the time uh, running a company called GSI, which ultimately went on to sell to PayPal. I mean, he's a very, very successful IT luminary. And Chris Jones gets this call and Ruben says, hey, why don't you come down and see me? I'd love to talk technology with you, blah, blah, blah. And so Jones goes to his office and he walks in and instead of Michael Rubin being by himself, he's flanked by his chief financial officer and his head legal counsel. And without really exchanging even the most basic pleasantries, Ruben says, all right, what do you want for pepper jam? And, and Jones, who's kind of not expecting the question and, and sort of had arrived there expecting to have this sort of very warm, you know, kind of collegial conversation, is on his back foot. And he says, what do you mean? What do I want? What do you want for your company? And Jones sort of blurts out a number, his kind of, his sort of bottom line. And Ruben, without acknowledging Jones directly, turns to his head of finance and says, okay, I think we can get a deal done. And what he was doing was communicating to his head of finance that like don't pay a penny more than the number Chris just shared. Right. Uh, Chris went on to have a great career and lots of success since then. So he, I mean, but when I interviewed him for the show, he said, "Yeah, I, I probably should not have answered that question." And it's one of the classic mistakes that I think a lot of entrepreneurs make. Uh, whereas the the correct answer is to simply say. I'm a reasonable person. I'd be happy to entertain any reasonable offer you think makes sense. And leave it at that. Let them make the first move because you may be surprised at what you see. And to the flip side to that is if you really are serious about selling your company and you do give a number, don't do something that's completely off the wall. Uh, I'm going to use an example, right? So um, I only had my company a couple of years and... I was very involved at the Chamber of Commerce. Mm-hmm. And the CEO of one of the banks approached me because they wanted to add an IT services branch to, to the bank. And they thought it would be perfect for me. Now, I mean, I think I had 200000 in revenue <laughs> at that point, right? And I said, oh, sure, I'll sell it to you for a million dollars. You know, and, and we're not even talking EBITDA, and and we're not even going to define that here. Everybody, if you want to know what all those terms are, get get the book. Go Google it. If you don't know what that is, you're you're not ready for this conversation that we're even having here. If you don't understand the, some of those basic financial stuff, and call me, reach out to John. We can talk to you about all those kind of things. But you know, I really had no clue, and I got an education that day from the CEO of the bank. And he sat down with me and he said, Laura, I love you. If you really would like to come with us, I'll tell you what your business is really worth and and why you should never go to somebody and say a million dollars without the numbers to back it up. And I I thought that was a brilliant lesson, John, that I got. Yeah, it's it's a great lesson because you're right. It works the other way. Not only, like in Chris Jones's case, can you put a ceiling on which you will ever sell your business for? Equally, y- you can throw out a number that's so outlandish that it can really turn off a lot of buyers. And, and it happens much before you've had a chance to romance the other side with all of the unique facets of your company. A lot of times, a buyer will just 
really quickly try to get you to answer the number to know if there's there's really any reason to bet in and start learning about your business. And of course, all of us, I think, as business owners are pretty used to having to say, sell a little bit. And if you lose the sale before it even begins, you've, you've done exactly that. And so by putting too high a number on, you can often have people walk away without ever really uh, learning about your business. So I think it's just always always a mistake. Again, I go back to this interview I just did yesterday uh, with this guy from SBI, Sales Benchmark Index. So we built this company, $30 million of annual revenue on 30 employees. And he figures it's worth roughly one, one and a quarter times revenue. And in fact, he's shared some equity with some key employees based on that valuation technique, 1.25 times annual revenue. Well, he takes it to market and sells it for $162 million. That's un it's unbelievable valuation. He would have, I mean, it was, what is that? Five times what he was valuing right. the company in? But had he thrown out a number so outlandish like that, he probably would have completely turned off everybody in the process. Equally, had he, turned, had he, had he shared his 1.25 times revenue, he would have given away in this case, tens of millions of dollars. So it's almost always a better play not to answer that question. Yeah, I love that. And I feel horrible about what I just told people that if they didn't know their numbers conversation, that <laughs> this isn't going to make sense. <laughs> because I think it's, it's at the same time, it's such a critical component. You shared a story in your book about the numbers, right? Where one of the owners, and I forget who it was, but I love the story when I was reading, and it's on one of these dog-eared pages in here, <laughs> where somebody wanted to buy their business and offered X, and she said to them, well, no, here's why I'm worth Z. Yeah. Because she knew her numbers, and she yeah. knew beyond the actual numbers, the additional value bombs that her business being bought out by the other one could provide to existing customers and customer retention and um, all of that kind of stuff. So I, I feel like numbers are something that too many entrepreneurs today don't fully understand. And you and I could have an entire show just on numbers, but you've written three incredible books that explain all of that. To people. <laughs> so. well, that's, that's very generous. Yeah, I think you're, you're referring to the story of Stephanie Breedlove. And of course, yes. one, yeah, one of the things that I think we make the mistake of doing as entrepreneurs is we think as, as we approach the sale of our company, we say, okay, if, if ABC Company buys me, because they're so big, they could sell a truckload of my product or service to their customers, right? right? And in many cases, that's not the way acquirers think. Acquirers are just as myopic as we are, right? Acquirers are just as focused on trying to sell their products. And so uh, having you know, the thought process of how you can help an acquirer sell more of their things, that's going to that's going to make all the difference when you're negotiating. Jay Steinfeld, another guy I interviewed, uh, built a business like called blinds.com. So they sold, as the name suggests, blinds. And Home Depot came along and said, man, what blinds has figured out is not only how to sell blinds, but they've they figured out how to sell complicated products that need to be installed on a website. 
And Home Depot at the time had a $90 billion worth of revenue, but none of it, virtually none of it, was being purchased through their website. And they were like, man, if we could get a 10% improvement in the performance of our website, we would save millions and millions, tens or hundreds of millions of dollars because it's so much more profitable to deal with customers through right. the website. So they bought blinds.com in part because they wanted to be number one in blinds. But the second reason they bought blinds.com was because they wanted to take what blinds had learned about selling complicated products and apply that wisdom to all of the other products in the Home Depot catalog. And that's the definition of a strategic acquisition. So again, what I think you want to be doing is saying, instead of like how who's out there that could help me sell my product, ask yourself the exact opposite question. Whose products would be helped if they bought my my company? Oh, I love that. Say that one yeah. more time. <laughs> yeah. Who, who out there could sell more of their products if they owned my company? And that's that's where you can start to develop a list of strategic acquirers. And I think that's a list... And it really came to the front focus for me when I when I read the book was this idea of planning and thinking about who might be a good acquirer. It's sort of like with when you're trying to find a sponsor for a show, mm. a podcast, or um, when I had my tech services company, people are like, how do you get people to pay for all these events and all these things that you want to do? It's like, I think about, I never thought of it this way until I read your book. I was looking at them as strategic acquirers, strategic partners. I'm helping them sell more by them giving me some money to do the things that I want to do. And we just lost John, everybody. It looks like his internet dropped, but we'll just keep talking. Um, up oh, and he is now back. I'm back. I think we I, I lost you there for a second, but I've got you now. Yeah, you dropped for a second there. So this this concept, this idea of thinking from day one about these possible acquirers, I think can help your business grow just in itself. Yes, no. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm, I'm a big believer in asking yourself, who are the strategics and how will they view the decision I'm about to make? Launching XYZ product, hiring a new employee, starting a new location. If it's going to make your business more attractive, I'm reminded of a guy uh, I interviewed very early in the show who built a company selling frozen yogurt. And he always wanted a consumer brand. It was kind of an ego thing, which he admitted on the, on, the, on the show. He wanted to be able to walk down Main Street and say, hey, there's my ice cream in that store. And so he got this ice cream, this, this frozen yogurt formula built and got distribution in some of the biggest retailers in America. Kroger, for example, was, was taking his frozen yogurt. But he always kind of wanted to have that experience of sort of saying, hey, there's my store. And so he built out a retail location. In fact, he built out 50 different retail locations across the Pacific Northwest, all of these different stores where people could walk in off Main Street and buy his frozen yogurt. Well, when he went to sell his company, the acquirers that looked at his business said, yeah, we have no interest in becoming the owners of some business with a bunch of 14-year-old kids who we've got to pay, who are missing their shifts. And, you know, I've got to clean up stores and, and deal with all of the nonsense of actually 
managing employees. What I want is distribution at Kroger's. And this frozen yogurt company is sort of a, a Trojan horse to get my other products into, Kro into Kroger. So it was eventually acquired by Yogenfruz, but only after he went through dozens and dozens of meetings with acquirers that didn't have any interest in buying his company because it was like this, it was like one of those, um, you know, like a, when you buy a cable plan for television and you, all you want is like two or three channels, you have to buy like 168 channels. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. It's the same thing when acquire looks at your business. If there's like one thing you do really well and there's 58 things you do kind of well, all they want is the one thing. You're going to want to be paid for your entire business. And again, it, it doesn't necessarily make it more attractive for an acquirer. So I don't know how we got onto that, but that was uh, well, a story that reminded me. Wants to build out their frozen yogurt stores, just know that that may not make you attractive if down the road you need to sell your business or you want to sell your business or your um, your family who is alive after you've passed wants to sell and you're trying to set it up for them. I mean, my parents went, wanted me to keep the condo that they used to live in and they bought it, they said, as an investment. And they refused even after my dad died and my mom was living with me, she wouldn't let me rent it out. So it just sat there vacant. And then they said, you, you know, we don't want you to sell it. So I had this sort of albatross hanging over me that they thought would always be a good investment down the road and ended up not being because they didn't see these trends and things that were changing. And I sold it and I sold it for a nice profit. Good but I had to think differently than what my parents had thought at the time. It's, it, I'm thinking it's similar to somebody with a business, you know, you, are you living your business just for you, but saying that it's your legacy you want to leave to your family, maybe they don't want it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or yeah. maybe they, by that point in time, you haven't really built a business that they could sell if they didn't want to run it. I guess yeah. that's where I'm going. Yeah, I, I hate to say it in such a uh, mean-spirited or confrontational way, but I, I feel like it's it's almost like the ultimate expression of your ego that that you would want your business to be passed down to your kids, that you would somehow want them to not forge their own journey, but to do exactly what you did for a living. And, I, and I, I could hear people saying, that's so outlandish. That's such a terrible thought. I'm you know, passing on this very valuable business to my kids. Maybe, but what other baggage are you passing along with that business? Wouldn't it be better to sell it, take the, the proceeds, live your life, certainly help them with their education and, and, and go about helping them in different ways that you can, but creating kids that could basically go and do their own thing. I think this idea of perpetuating business from one generation to the next um, is just a real, it's just the owner trying to fulfill their ego. And I just think it's, uh, personally, I think it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a sad indictment of their, of their, uh, the fragile ego. And, and it's, it's a real, it's a real problem. Yeah. Unless you've talked to the family members and it's something they truly do want to do. Like but I even have, then, even have just taken over because yeah. they've been in the business and they love it. You know, it's like their passion, but yeah, you see, I disagree. I disagree. I think it's almost always a mistake 
here's the thing. If, and I've, I, I've seen this so many times. I feel so passionately about this conversation. I think if you, if your kids say to you, oh, I would love to run your business, I would love to own the family namesake, the business, et cetera, et cetera. What could possibly happen there? Number two things is going to happen. Number one is they are going to work themselves to the bone to prove how successful they are. They're going to give up their kids' birthday parties. They're not going to go to the t-ball games. They're going to drive themselves to obsession to show you, their mom or dad, how successful they are in a very unbalanced, unhealthy way. Equally, what if they're not as successful, not as driven as you? They're going to forever live wondering and feeling insecure that they aren't as smart as mommy or daddy. I don't see how it ends well in either scenario. I have, you know, I have, uh, I have a, a, a very specific example of this here in, in Canada. Ted Rogers was a tremendously successful cable magnet who's inherited his business from his father who owned radio stations. And on his deathbed, Ted Rogers said, you know, was asked sort of, why did you work so obsessively for all those years, even though you'd created so much wealth? His answer was, I wanted to prove my dad that I was successful. His dad had been dead for 50 years. Wow. And so I just think it doesn't end well. Either you're going to create an absolutely obsessive personality and they're not going to have a happy life, or you're going to create someone who's forever insecure that they've been building something that they weren't as successful as somebody else. So I hate to be as controversial as that, but I just think it's always a mistake. Well, I think that's a great way to start to close up the show because I think that's a conversation that, you know, you need to do a series on that. On, <laughs> you on just pissed team. off every one of my listeners. <laughs> no, but, but just think about that. Looking at companies that family members took over and, and what happened with that, that's like a whole nother show that could be it's, done, a whole nother series of shows. It's love it. It's more of a psychological, yeah, you know, it's more for fam you know, family dynamics consultants than I, you know, that's not my wheelhouse, but it would be kind of interesting to see some of those. Uh, yeah. It would be kind of interesting to see some of that stuff. Um, all right. So John, talk about how people can get the art of selling your business built to sell value builders, uh, where they can get that and how they can reach you if they have questions um, and yeah, how they can yeah. find your podcast too. Yeah. So the book is called The Art of Selling Your Business. It's the distillation of, Laura's holding it up there, it's the distillation of 300 plus interviews, including Laura, uh, and what I learned from interviewing them on my podcast. It is designed as a bit of a, a, a field guide to punching above your weight when you go to sell. Um, we've actually got seven of some of my favorite interviews over the years, seven entrepreneurs, and we've invited them to a special uh, speaker series. So for just for readers of the book, you can ask your firsthand questions of seven of the, the people in the book, people like Stephanie that I referenced earlier. Um, so to get that access to that webinar and speaker series, um, you just can go to builttosell.com slash selling. And then you will be able to ask your own questions of the seven of the former guests on the show, as well as me, I'll be moderating the session. So again, it's just builttosell.com slash selling. 
Perfect. And I highly recommend that everybody subscribe to your newsletter, get on your list because you put out such great content. Oh, it's for um, kind of easy. Throughout. Okay. So, and is that the best way also for people if they have yep. questions about the process um, or just anything that we talked about today to reach you to go to builttosell.com? Yeah, builttosell.com and you can opt in there and, um, uh, the, obviously if you've got questions of me, uh, you just want to go to built to slash selling. Okay, great. Thank you so much for your insights and for putting out this great book that honestly, I do wish I had written. <laughs> <laughs> well, you contributed to it in a big way. Your interview. It's just really is John. I mean, your other two books as well, I found really instructive and the fact that I dog-eared it as much as I did dog ear it tells my, my listeners out there, you want to talk about, you asked me the question, do I refer anybody? Well, if somebody's a guest on my show, I obviously think very highly of them and believe in what they're talking about. So thank you for coming on the show. My pleasure. All right. And hang on and I'll be right back to you, John. Everybody, I, to me, these conversations about building your business and what you need to be thinking about longer term and shorter term are so critical to how you live your life, how you grow your business, and how you feel about what you're doing each and every day. So if you're not thinking about your exit strategy, as I've said on this show before, I hope after today, you are now thinking about that, whether your exit strategy is selling your business, passing your business on, or just one day you just close your doors and you retire. Whatever it may be, I encourage you to think about that and ask yourself the questions now before you're forced into making decisions that you have no preparation for. Because remember, the right questions can change your life. What are you asking today? Have a great day, everyone. You've been listening to It's All About the Questions, starring Laura Stewart. Connect with Laura at itsallaboutthequestions.com and download a free workbook that will help you ask better questions starting today.